it's another exciting opportunity we've been given to assemble together in the way that we are. The singing, as always, is so encouraging and uplifting, so spirited and so, so filled with such powerful messages as well. As always, we're so thankful for our membership and the ability that it's ours tonight to assemble and to gather. So many encouraging things that you and I can appreciate that's available to us through the services. And of course, the visitors also that have come our way, we're so happy also that you are here with us too. Last Sunday evening, we began a series of lessons. As you can see, it was part one of a series entitled World History from Daniel. And it was on that occasion that we cast an impressive spotlight on the opening chapter of that book of prophecy found in the Old Testament. I would simply ask you to notice that as we studied that, we saw so much about the beauty and the marvel of the character of Daniel, one who was so spiritually refined, one who was so determined and dedicated and pure and a life that he desired so strongly to be filled with holiness and godliness. Maybe you and I can use that to challenge ourselves with a plea that the disciples, in fact, ask in Luke 17, 5, Lord, they said, increase our faith. They were excited and eager at that point for the Lord to assist them, to motivate them, to bring to fruition and increase in their faith. Because of what Paul wrote in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Perhaps you and I tonight in our study of Daniel chapter 2 can have our faith strengthened and increased. As we come to installment number two in the series, I hope that you will in fact follow along with me in the book of Daniel. It'll be chapter two tonight that'll primarily be our topic of message, but also the time will come we will also make consideration of chapter seven at least part way through that chapter also this evening. As we come to this next slide, the scene of Daniel, the second chapter, is probably very familiar to us, but I wanted to rehearse the major historical scene of it and then devote some consideration to the interpretation of it. As Daniel chapter 2 commences, you notice it says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. In a day and time when dreams carried communication from God, we realize here was the monarch, the leader of the Babylonian Empire, and he had a dream. And he perceived that the dream was significant. He perceived that it carried with it information that was vital to his understanding and also to that of the future eras and times. But the problem was he was unable to recollect the dream. You and I can well remember that there are so many times that we have a dream at night and maybe you wake in the morning and you knew that you had one, but you can't remember the details. It's a fuzzy kind of matter at that point. And of course today there is no fuller, richer, meaningful appreciation from God. That day has passed. But it wasn't that way back in Nebuchadnezzar's time. He had a dream, but he was unable to recall it. And so in the morning, he called those of the empire that supposedly had the gift. He called his astrologers and his magicians and the Chaldeans and said, Tell me the dream, and then tell me the interpretation. Almost immediately, they were in a very dire predicament. For you see, they were accustomed to someone telling them a dream and then asking them to interpret it. And you and I can well imagine the kind of shenanigans that would go with that. 
if you tell them a dream, they can make up nearly anything and then make claim that there's something realistic and true about it. But Nebuchadnezzar demanded something far greater. Not only do you tell us the interpretation, you've got to tell us the dream preceding it. They frankly admitted to Nebuchadnezzar, no king has ever asked this of us, and in fact, no king has ever asked this of those in his empire. And therefore, they said, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's response was swift and direct. He said, if you don't tell me the dream and then the interpretation, I'll put you to death. And almost immediately, they now were in an exceedingly difficult position. Remembering that Daniel and his three friends, those that we studied last Sunday evening, they fell into the category of those being schooled in the wisdom and errors of the time. And so the death sentence not only would apply to those magicians and soothsayers and others, it would also apply to Daniel and to his three friends. As we arrive at verses 10 and following in Daniel chapter 2, that saga then rather quickly proceeds as the death sentence comes, Daniel is immediately perturbed in the sense that he asks, why is the haste in this matter? The news is then shared. The king has had a dream and those who supposedly could interpret are not able to do so and so the sentence of death is coming upon it. Daniel quickly replied, allow us to beseech God. Allow I and my friends to pursue this matter. We will then give the king his answer. And so Daniel approached his three friends and urged them to pray earnestly to the God of heaven, and they did. And that very evening, God blessed Daniel with the thoroughness not only of the dream Nebuchadnezzar had had, but also the interpretation thereof. It is with that in mind, you'll notice, as you come near the bottom of that slide, in particular, the dream consisted of a remarkable image. Perhaps... The following picture would do justice. What Nebuchadnezzar saw was a, an image, a great image, the text says. We aren't told how high it was in his dream, but it was a fantastic image. It had a head of gold. It had a breast and arm region of silver. It had a midsection and thighs of brass. Its lower legs were of iron, and its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. When Nebuchadnezzar saw this, however, some other things developed in the dream. For also there was a stone that was made without hands. No human made it. And this stone crushed or at least rolled into the image in the lower section of it and it destroyed the image. But that rock, that stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And as Nebuchadnezzar now heard this rehearsal of the dream he had had, you and I quickly notice as the chapter rolls forward that Daniel gave the interpretation of it too. Now perhaps as you and I think about this occurrence and this image of so long ago, we can certainly stand amazed at the reality of what took place in regard to it. Because as Daniel would quickly reveal it, the particular sections of that image weren't just arbitrary metallic portions and pieces. They each represented a civilization. They each represented a kingdom of men. They each represented, if you will, a significant piece in the ongoing removal to the time when ultimately the great stone would come. 
what God revealed to Daniel, and thus he, of course, to you and me as well, by the marvelous inspiration of the moment, he revealed ultimately God's preparation of the Gentile nations for the ultimate coming of the Christ, one that you and I would call the Christ. I would submit to you as we then look again at the image, returning to the features of it. Let's go back and finish that previous slide. As we noted, the stone ultimately played such an incredible role because again, it became the mountain that filled the whole earth. It is with that in mind, might we then proceed to two slides later. And notice that at that point, we're going to look at its interpretation in just a minute. But there's something else that it seems first would occupy our consideration. That has to do with what occurs in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. You see, chapters 2 and 7 are linked together in a beautiful way. They're linked in such a fashion that in many ways the power and majesty of the former is a strong guide and in fact a remarkable one in the latter. Let's see what we mean by that. Keep in mind that that first vision started, in fact it was given, that dream was to Nebuchadnezzar. It was given almost at the very outset of his reign. He had only been king a couple of years. And so if we had to make an assertion of the date... That dream he had in about the year 605 B.C. As we come to chapter 7, you'll notice how the time frame is given in verse number 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Now you'll notice this one says it was in the reign of Belshazzar. In fact, in the first year, historically we appreciate the following. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a long time over the Babylonian kingdom. However, the time came that he gave way to another, and that was his son, Nabonidus, N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S. However, following the reign of Nabonidus was his son, whose name was Belshazzar. So really, Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. You notice rather quickly about the time. Belshazzar began to reign in a time frame about 556 B.C. And hence, the time of this dream that Daniel had was almost exactly 50 years after the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. A half century had elapsed, and over that period of time, a number of interesting developments but you'll notice a new king had come to the throne. He too needed to appreciate what the Babylonian kingdom was to represent and these other kingdoms that were to follow it. And so Daniel was given by the God of heaven an amazing vision. I would ask that you notice, since this was fairly short, let's begin in verse number 1 and let's read through verse number 4. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. I've tried to summarize some of those things upon this, but 
Daniel, in this vision, in this dream, saw the troubled Mediterranean Sea. That was the great sea to which he referenced. And he began to observe that four great beasts came up out of that water. The first one, he quickly informed us, was like a lion. But a very unusual lion, for it had the wings of an eagle. Can you picture that? A lion with eagle's wings? But you began to notice almost immediately that there were a few other comments. At the top left is a picture, a lion with eagle's wings. Now, we don't know if that's exactly what it looked like in the vision that Daniel had, but at least it gives you and me an idea, a circumstance, a consideration of the unusual thing that Daniel saw. You quickly notice that this lion with eagle's wings, what's more is said about it in verse number 4 is this. The wings were plucked. You may notice on the figure at the bottom right, the wings had fallen off. Those wings were no longer attached to the lion. And not only that, it says in verse number 4, it was lifted up from the earth. The lion stood up on its feet as if almost it had the capability and characteristics of a man because it goes on to say a man's heart was given to it. As you and I think about this vision that Daniel had, and as we give consideration to the way it relates back to chapter number 2, Let's proceed on to some interpretations, some meanings, if you will. What are we to say about that multifaceted image of metal in chapter 2 and this lion with eagle's wings in chapter 7? You see, they are indicative of the same thing. Let's begin with some of these comments. First of all, we are not left to wonder about the features of what the sections of that image represented. Daniel, in fact, told us. In the lesson text tonight, Andrew read from Daniel chapter 2, and would you revisit with me verse 36. When Daniel then delivered the interpretation of that dream Nebuchadnezzar had had, this is what he said that it meant. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Daniel then frankly admitted, and in, in verses previous to that, he fully gave all the credit and glory to God. The God of heaven has revealed this to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 36, this is the dream. Verse 37, Thou, O king, so as he addressed Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. The head of gold that was on that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, that head of gold was representative of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom. It was representative of such and as much as God revealed it to be so. As you appreciate that statement at the top, I'm sure we've each appreciated the fact that as you proceed down the image from gold to silver to brass to iron and to, then to clay, there's definitely a movement toward lesser and lesser finery. Gold is more precious, after all, than silver, and silver is more precious than, than brass or bronze, and that's more precious than iron. God was revealing that the degree of fineness in the succeeding kingdom was going to get less and less with each coming one. 
as you and I reflect upon the Babylonian kingdom, I've asked you to notice some things at the top. It was to be a fine kingdom. It was organized very strongly. It was set forth in marvelous power and majesty, and Nebuchadnezzar ruled it in, an, in a remarkable way. Not only that, it was a wealthy empire that also seemingly was indicated somewhat by the features of the gold aspect of it. Babylon had access to a great deal of wealth. That came in part because we notice in some other verses like Isaiah 47, 5, the Babylonian kingdom was called the Lady of Ladies, the Lady of Kingdoms in essence. What a rich and supremely interesting description. Later in Daniel 2.39, we notice again in the very text before us, the head of gold was the Babylonian one. Not only that, you might notice as we transition to chapter 7, one more time, those beasts that came up out of the water. We only read about the first one, I admit. We'll take up the others in succeeding Sunday evenings. But one by one, those beasts were described in the first one. The one that was like a lion with eagle's wings. That one too is going to correlate to the Babylonian kingdom. That was God's way of revealing to Daniel that his promise concerning the statement of chapter 2 had by no means ended. It still was true and it still was the way it was going to be. Case in point, look at some of the things about a lion. A lion is obviously known for its ferociousness, its fierceness. A lion is... Obviously called the king of the jungle. No other animals will tangle, I wouldn't think, with a lion. Think about Babylon. She ruled with an iron hand. What Nebuchadnezzar wanted, Nebuchadnezzar got. He destroyed Jerusalem, you and I well remember, and that was but one empire. He conquered Egypt. He conquered Assyria. He conquered a number of other nations. In that time, none were able to stand against him. His military people... His military commanders were exceedingly, exceedingly cruel in some ways. You also notice the dominating and strong character of that empire, perhaps culminating in the absoluteness of its power. I say all of that to ask you to notice what comes next. That lion wasn't just a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. You and I would never see that, of course, in the actual nature of a physical lion. What did it mean that in this interesting vision that it had the wings of an eagle? The Bible often uses the reference to an eagle in relation to swiftness, speediness, the incredible rapidity with which things can develop and happen. And it would appear that that's exactly what it references here. I say that to ask you to note this. When Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne, what was meant by it? How quickly was he able to ultimately conquer so much territory? Ordinarily, you and I think about a kingdom rising slowly. Maybe over a period of decades, sometimes even longer. Finally, the strength will develop. That's what ultimately happened in Rome. Rome wasn't built in a day. We often make that statement, don't we? But we notice here that it seemingly God asserted that this lion was to have eagle's wings. It would rise to prominence very, very quickly. And that's exactly what happened. The Assyrian Empire was the one that preceded the Babylonian one. Nebuchadnezzar 
came to the throne again in 606. In 605, one year later, he conquered Assyria. Same year, he conquered Egypt too. Nebuchadnezzar wasted no time in asserting himself in the Babylonian monarchy as the prime one upon the earth and all others were to give way to it. It seems to be very much the case then historically. The features about that lead us to note this. Though it rose quickly, you'll notice some other things about those wings. They were plucked. Don't you find that intriguing? If it be true then that the description we've asserted about the speedy ascension of the Babylonian kingdom, what would it mean to say that the wings were plucked? It would seem, based on the text of Daniel 7, that likely has reference to this. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, though he himself ruled for a very long time, after he died, the empire was much more given to instability. The succeeding rulers weren't nearly the leader that he was. It was much more disorganized. It was much more open to attack. Nebuchadnezzar was the mastermind. He was the one that kept it in such a domineering and dominating position for so long. I've asked you to note, the expansion ceased rather quickly. Sounds a lot like the wings were plucked. Just as quickly as the kingdom rose, once the wings were plucked, it wasn't able to speedily move any longer. On land, lions aren't known to be that quick. Maybe it's in light of that you'll notice the lion reared up on its hind feet, the text says. It seems to suggest this. The fierceness and the ferociousness that had described the Babylonian empire beneath the days of Nebuchadnezzar, that appears not to have been nearly as adequate a description of the later years of that empire. The successor to Nebuchadnezzar, like Nabonidus and Belshazzar and others, may I ask you to notice, they appears to be much weaker in their leadership ability. They appear to have been much more a description of what it was like to rear up on their feet. They, in some ways, were more humane. They, in some ways, were far more reminded of the nature of the human being. They weren't as punishing. They weren't as cruel. They weren't as ruthless. Notice how, again, God described it. This was told in the days of Belshazzar, a man's heart given to it. Could it be that that was God's way of describing the ultimate nature of what was going to happen over the last dozen years of the Babylonian Empire? Remember, this dream or this dream that Daniel had, that was told to Belshazzar at about 555 B.C. The Babylonian kingdom was crushed and overthrown 16 years later. It didn't last long. Isn't it interesting to think we here in America... Our nation has now lasted well over 225 years. Babylon didn't even last 100. And yet she was the head of gold. Isn't that fascinating? You'll notice if this indeed is a relationship to the nature of the final days of that kingdom. Before it was overrun, it seems that the leaders, the weak they were, they were more given to humane treatment of prisoners and humane treatment of others. One last thing. The other kings that I've listed for you, Evil Merodach, Negrolisser, the others that I've listed, all of them 
with the various leaders of the Babylonian kingdom, and one by one they gave way to the next. None was as great as Nebuchadnezzar had been. With those kind of thoughts in the mind of this lion with eagle's wings, maybe one set of final ideas about some lessons, it seems to me, you and I can take from this description, this head of gold, this lion with eagle's wings, this description of the Babylonian monarchy. First of all, what about the historical accuracy? I'm sure you, like myself, stand in utter amazement at how that God wrote history precisely, minutely, and exactly before it happened. That great image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, remember, that would span those other kingdoms, and we haven't even gotten to the other ones yet. What about the silver section, and the brassy section, and the iron section? God looked down the stream of time well over half a millennium and stated exactly what these other kingdoms were going to be like. In relation to the kingdom known as Babylon, it all came to pass exactly like He said it would. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. But after you, there's going to arise a kingdom inferior to you. It won't be as refined. It won't have the same characteristics. And what's more, as told to Belshazzar, of course, the wings are going to be plucked. Just as surely as the kingdom rose to prominence quickly, the expansion is going to cease. Maybe Belshazzar hadn't yet appreciated it, but it was soon going to happen. The entire kingdom wasn't going to last even 20 more years, and it would be gone into the dustbin of history, giving way to another one. Maybe as you think about that historical accuracy and the short-lived nature of this Babylonian kingdom, less than 100 years is all it lasted. It rose to prominence in 606 B.C. The Persians conquered it in 539. Less than 100 years. As great a kingdom as it was, it served the purpose for which God intended it. Nebuchadnezzar carried out the work that God needed him to do to refine his own people in Babylonian captivity. And once that purpose was served, there was no more Babylon. Isn't that a timeless lesson that brings us to the judgment then that God poured upon Babylon? She was the head of gold, no doubt about that. But notice we just now affirm she was crushed and overthrown by another empire. Why did God allow that to happen to her? May we submit the Bible is not silent on that. I would ask you to think about Isaiah 13, 19. God had revealed to Isaiah quite a bit prior to this that God was going to judge Babylon. He was going to use her to fill the purposes for which He needed her Namely, to carry out the sentences of judgment upon some of the nations. But once those judgments were served, Babylon herself would be judged. Babylon herself, in fact, would have to answer for the cruelty and the way in which she had, in fact, so often neglected God. We'll see that again when we come to later in the book of Daniel. In Jeremiah 50, beginning in verse 1, there is a lengthy chapter detailing God's judgment upon Babylon. As you and I read chapters like Jeremiah chapter 50, aren't we reminded that the nations are in the very palm of the great almighty God of heaven and He rises them up when it is His will and He brings them to naught when that's also His will. Daniel, later in this very book, three times in Daniel 4, is going to make the statement about the nature of the nations and the characteristic fact that 
God rules in the kingdoms of men. In many ways, that can almost serve as a key verse in, in the entirety of the book of Daniel. I might ask you to notice in Romans 1 verse 18, you and I recognize today that still the judgment of God will be poured forth on all who live ungodly and all who live disobediently to Him. Beginning in verse 16 of that same chapter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because Nebuchadnezzar and those that were in Babylon held the truth in unrighteousness, they were fit subjects for the judgments of God, and that happened in 539 B.C. Maybe that brings us to one final lesson. Isn't it fascinating to give thought to the other ways in the Bible that the word Babylon is used? We are so accustomed, at least in our study of Daniel and other Old Testament books, to thinking about that specific empire. Maybe this picture will be of some help. Perhaps you can see it in color. There's a colored region there over toward the middle and, and sweeping downward to the left on the picture. That shows the Babylonian empire at its height. When Nebuchadnezzar had conquered not only the region there near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, but he also had conquered the Assyrian area up near the Black Sea. And over here to the bottom right, at the bottom left, even Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Egypt at one time. You can imagine how swiftly all of that happened. No wonder it's, high, it's likened unto again that lion with eagle's wings. So swift, so speedy were his conquerings. But as you think about that, notice again the Bible uses this reference to Babylon in other ways. Going back to that previous slide. Babylon. I'm sure as you merely hear the word, quickly to your mind and mind comes the references of the Word of God. To those occasions when Babylon was used in a descriptive way, to make reference to those people who persecuted His people. Those individuals who persecuted His people. Case in point, in Psalm 137 verse number 1 is a literal reference to these Babylonians who in fact had destroyed that temple. Nebuchadnezzar and his group had completely brought it to naught. Tears were proverbially streaming down the face of the psalmist as he made reference to what he remembered and what Babylon had done. But in Jeremiah 25, verse number 11, that noble prophet also makes statement about what the Babylonians were doing. That only prepares us for these other references, such as these in the New Testament. What should you and I make then of that occasion in Revelation 14, 8? when we find Babylon is mentioned again. Now, the book of Revelation, of course, is the very last book in the Bible. The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, had long since ceased to be. What did God then mean as He referred to Babylon in Revelation 14? Or furthermore, in Revelation 17, 5, a whole chapter devoted to the destruction of Babylon. 
But I thought Babylon was destroyed back in the days of 539 B.C. It's easy to conclude, isn't it? As we study that book of Revelation, we find that that word Babylon is being used in a descriptive way to refer to those who persecuted God's people. Those who didn't appreciate the thoroughness of the truth of God and who in fact strove to bring to naught the lives and well-being of those who were Christians. May I say today, there still are Babylons on this earth. They're attacking you and me. They're attacking Christians everywhere. They're in the legion of the devil. We know from the book of Revelation what's in store for Babylon. Just like ancient Babylon was destroyed due to the judgment of God. In the book of Revelation, one more time, Babylon is destroyed. Those who persecute God's people won't end up winners. They won't end up triumphant. They will not end up victorious. God will destroy them just like He did the ancient kingdom of Babylon. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, Revelation 17, 5 tells us. That is that beautiful description of the fact that the great power of the devil shall ultimately be destroyed. Revelation is a timeless example of it. When the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14, who is none other than Jesus Christ, when He runs and reigns supreme, all of those who oppose Him, they too shall be crushed. They too shall be destroyed. Doesn't that promote you and me to a point of wanting to make sure we live right? To make sure we live faithfully? To make sure that we are on His side and not opposed to Him? For those opposed to Him don't stand a chance. They literally don't stand a chance. As we come to the close of that, what a sweet message it is to read 1 Peter 5.13. Whereas Peter wrote that book... He even made reference to the fact there were saints in Babylon. You see, even those who are in Babylon, though they may have persecuted the things of God, if they will but respond to the gospel, if they will but turn their heart, they too can be recognized as being on the Lord's side. And surely if we're on the Lord's side, what evil can befall us? Let's close our lesson then if we might. We've studied one more episode of world history from the book of Daniel. We've quite frankly cast a spotlight on the Babylonian kingdom because it was the head of gold. It was the lion with eagle's wings. It does, however, prepare us for the succeeding kingdoms that we're going to get to starting next Sunday night. For what about the silver section and what about the next beast that Daniel saw come up out of that Mediterranean sea? We're going to study that when we come again to our next Sunday night's lesson. As always, how thankful we can be for the revelation of the Word of God. World history was revealed before its time. You and I can be so encouraged by studying it, reminded always that God rules in the kingdoms of men. Tonight, maybe your life and mine is not as compliant with the things of God as it ought to be. We ought to learn something from Nebuchadnezzar if so. Just as God destroyed him, you and I too will be crushed beneath the mighty terror of the day of judgment. It's time to make a change tonight. It's time to be ready tonight. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. We have to be ready all the time. Tonight, if there's someone in the audience and all isn't well with your soul, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. It's an opportune time, a convenient time. If you need to respond to the gospel's invitation call initially, 
why not do it at once? Believe upon Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Messiah and be baptized. If you've attended to that but you haven't been faithful, come back to your first love so that you too can be honored as being one of those in the very kingdom of the Master. If we could pray to God on your, on your behalf, we'd be happy to do it. We would only ask you to let us know the way we can help, and why not do it now? All together we stand and sing.